regardless of, of money or credit, you are part of some of the most important funk jazz ever created. I agree. You I, know, I, and I, so what was it like when you created Chameleon? Okay, well, let's, let's talk about the experience. And let me tell you what happened. Here's what happened. We, there was a studio that was, that was uh, booked. It was called Funky Jacks. Okay, aside from being with Herbie in his house in Hollywood, which we did a lot, we would get together and we would just play. Herbie didn't write no music out. No one wrote a note of that. See that record you have in your hand? Wasn't one note written out, okay? None. We just jammed. And from those jams came the ideas. And everybody equally contributed to that. Everybody. There was no one person that just jumped him. But Herbie did. Her, of course, Herbie Hancock is Herbie Hancock. He brought a hell of a lot to the table because his his degree of musicianship is off the chain. I mean, you. I mean, he's awesome. He's just 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 awesome. You know, all you can say is awesome. You know, you you're there next to this guy, and you you can you can laugh with him, you can have fun with, him. you can pray with him. He's a Buddhist. Um, he's a really nice person. He's a very his, his his heart is really big, and so the music is like that. You know, he's he's a genius. So of course that that's part of it. That's that's part of the inspiration that drove the band. But everybody in that band has something so awesome to offer. So if you look at Harvey Mason, yeah, I mean, there's nothing to be said. I mean, there's, there was no better drummer in, within the vicinity. There was no place, and uh, Harvey Mason was, was so sought after, he didn't need Herbie Hancock. He didn't need anybody. He was making more money just playing in the studio. He didn't need to do anything else. But his, his chops and his, his knowledge and his reading ability and everything is just awesome. And then you have Paul Jackson. Paul Jackson is the is the most unique sounding bass player that came out of that particular era and genre of music. No one to this day can play like Paul Jackson. No, nobody. And every good bass player on this planet knows who Paul Jackson is. Can't touch him. Can't do it. It's not possible because he's so unique. And that's what Herbie was looking for. Good and unique. Good and unique. That's what he wanted. Benny Maupin, he was with Herbie for years before the Headhunters, and Benny could make sounds with his horn that called elephants. They'd jump in the water and go from Africa to the United States to hear him play his horn. He was that, you know, he just had this sound. And um, then there was this guy, Bill Summers, who just who brought the African and the jungle. I brought the bush to it. I brought the, get, I brought the ghetto to it. The, the P-Funk, the real P-Funk. The Africa, Africa is the origin of the funk. It is hands down. It ain't a, it's not a racial thing. It's a factual thing. They brought the rhythm, call and response, and Tiffany, that's African. That's African. The pentatonic scale, they wear it out. Okay, so there it is. That's, that, so making the music was like that. We went to Funky Jacks and we just jammed. We just played. Played. <laughs> Played and played and played. And then we started pulling these little grooves away and saying, let's develop that. That's how it happened. Is that how like the other ones came to? Like 
that well, thrust was a little different. More, you know, it started going. You know, I felt that we started going. I think I think the first record, we were going in the right direction. When thrust came, it was just as good. But but people started thinking about what we were playing more. If that was more, you know, like okay, how do we refine what whatever we did with headhunters? Can we can we improve upon it? Can we? You know, I never thought about it like that. I just say, you know, let's just play and do the music, and it'll, it is what it is. But uh, I think that was, I think it was a little more organized than the first record in this, terms of. I'm sorry. No, no, no. This is the one uh, I was in junior high or something. This is the one that hooked me, and then I went back and got the other stuff. But. Um, to this day, I still just love this record so much. Which one is that one? What's this is Manchild. Manchild. That was a good record. But by that time, by that time, the band was being dismantled. Now, if you look on, I think on Manchild, Sheila E is on it. Well, Blackbird came in. Blackbird was in before then. Oh, was he? Well, let me see. The Headhunters did a record. By, we, we did our first solo record. This one, yes. Now, what year was that? This is same year as Manchild '75. Okay, well there it is. Yeah, that's when Blackbird came in. You know, you're right. Then, then we did that, and on that particular Headhunters record, Herb, Herbie's not on it. That was the band, just the band. And there's a there's, song on. This is yeah. There's a song on that record called uh, "God Make Me Funky." There you. Yeah, I see me. I'm very familiar with it, with that uh, jacket. <laughs> uh, there was a song on there called "God Make Me Funky." That's a great track. And that song had the Pointer Sisters singing background, and it is one. Of, it is probably one of the ten most sampled songs in, in in music. It's big. You know, we get sampled. We just we're clearing a sample right now. It's it's you know, and what they do is why are they did they want to sample that? Well. Back, back in the day, day when samplers first started, when people started first sampling, uh, they can only, the samplers only would do a couple of seconds. You know, they didn't, you, you didn't have that much room. I mean, you'd be lucky if you had 100K. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I, a megabyte was big back then, okay? Believe right. me. You know, so just one, one big. The first Apple computer was 512K, okay? So I had it, so I know. And uh, so sampling was, you only needed to get a little snippet, a bar. Can you find a clean bar with drums in this, in this tune? So all these guys out there doing, trying to start the hip hop revolution and all that, they were looking to, to just grab a, a bite, they called it, just a, a, a small portion. If they could find a fill without the bass in it, or any other instruments and the drummer plays something, they're going to grab it. Because that means they can build on top of that without any tonal reference, you know? So that's what they did on, on God Made Me Funky. The intro is just me and Michael Clark for, I don't know, 16 bars or more. Then the bass comes in. So they have this this chunk that they can just, they can just, as soon as the tune starts, they can start sampling. And so that's why it became such a popular sampling thing. Uh, so at any rate, I went off on a tangent. What, what, where were we at? <laughs> oh, we were talking about uh, the mid '70s period. So, um, yeah, the "Hang Up Your Hang Up" Stevie Wonder was on that. Um, 
and Blackbird came in. So, right. you know, Blackbird, of course, went on to uh, be a big P-Funk guy. What, what, uh, what was he like as a kid coming in and playing with the Headhunters? He was Flamio Octavio. You know what that means? I've heard that name. That's, that's, a, that's a, That was his name. Obsidian Blackbird, Obsidian, alias Flamio Octavio. <laughs> so, but, well, look, Benny Moppin actually brought Bird along, brought Bird into the situation. And when I first met Blackbird, I didn't know if he could play or not. He would play, and I would say, damn, that's, that's pretty far out. You know, I mean, it was, if he was so out there, you know, he was, he was out there like, like, um, like Jimi Hendrix. I would I would say he was on the same he's on the same level. His um his 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 concept and his approach was so different. And he would play and I would just scratch my head. I said, what the hell did he just play? <laughs> well, me and Blackbird are pretty tight. He's a good guy. And uh, he became one of uh, you know, we you know, we were like a family. So, you know, we're still, we're still, we're still talking and doing things together since he's been with George Clinton. I know George and uh, George is, we've worked together and I've watched Blackbird uh, when it was George in his, in his heyday, you know, uh, with the Brides of Frankenstein and uh, the Parliament Funkadelic and the, and the, and the, and what was the ship, the, 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 the spaceship, the, the mothership, the mothership, all of that. I was, I was there. I, I was there. I saw it. I was a part of it, you know, in a lot of ways. And that I was mesmerized by this funk mass. I think George, George Clinton, I, and I think for sure, I think he played in James Brown's band also. I think he was in James's band. I know a bunch of those guys touched, it had something to do with James Brown. But uh, I think even Bootsy played with, with, with James, Bootsy Collins, I think. But anyway, um, Blackbird, this is, everybody's, Blackbird was pretty into us. I remember going to Japan with Blackbird. And, you know, you asked me what he was like as a young kid. You know, what was Black, yeah. What was Bird like as a young kid? He was, we would go, he and I would hang out a lot. And, and when we were in Japan, you know, they, they, you know, he didn't speak Japanese. And, and I could speak a little. But so we go to a restaurant to give you an idea what kind of personality Blackbird had. And, um, we had he didn't eat he didn't eat meat. So there was I think it was Niko Nishimas. I think that's what it was. That's what the words you say if you don't if you want just no no meat something like Niko Nishimas. I don't know. We had figured it out. So we go to the now in Japan you go to the restaurant and everything that's on the menu there's a picture, and usually they have it in the window. I mean, when they make a parfait, it looks just like the parfait in the window. If there's some pee, if it's a pilaf, it looks exactly like the pilaf in the window. And it's rubber dough. But they make it look just like the dish they're going to prepare for it. You see some tempura. They got rubber tempura in the window, but it looks just like the dish. So now you can, come, you can take the waiter outside, a waitress, and point to something. So what Bird would do, we'd go out to the place and, and of course, they would put little pieces of ham in it, you know, a little cube of ham in the peas and stuff. He didn't want nothing. He didn't want no meat. So we take the guy out front, and Bird would say, "Nico Nishimas," and he pointed at some dish with little chunks of meat in it. And and he, and, the, and the guy, the Japanese guy, would say, "Okay, hi, 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 hi." 
You know, so we get in, they bring the dish. They bring me my food. I have my spaghetti bolognese. And they bring him a salad. They bring him a salad. Not what he was pointing at, but when he said no meat, salad. <laughs> and Bird would get mad, boy, Bird. Bird would blow up. He would get so upset. I want to go home. You know, he was a young guy. I don't know, 17, 18 years old at the time. You know, so, I, I got to tell you, I went to uh, Japan once, and it was in 2005, and uh, I don't eat seafood. And so, oh, my God. You have trouble. I told them, I, I told them no seafood, and they, they just, it didn't even register. They didn't understand it. So they would take it away and bring a different fish or seafood. It just, I got nowhere. So I lived on mostly protein bars while I was there. Yeah, well, you know, that's a lesson. You know, that's why Americans... You know, if I, I've traveled around the world many times, I've been on every continent more than once. And I do know this. Americans, there is a such there is such a thing as the ugly American. It's a reality because we're, we, we, been, we've been so privileged and we've been so spoiled that everybody else needs to speak English, <laughs> you know, which is stupid. You know what I'm saying? And, and we kill the experience that we could have with other people because the most important thing, now I can say hello in probably 50 languages. Because I know that the breaking the ice is me saying about a Gandhi or saying, you know, uh, ni hao or saying uh, arigato or saying, you know, ohayo gozaimasu or saying buenos dias. You know what I'm saying? If you, if you can't say como se va, se va bien, if you can't speak these languages, good and time. If you can't do it, you're missing the boat. Yeah. You don't get anything. You get, you, you get just what you deserve. You get treated like an American. Now, well, the real, now the there's real, no excuse. It's so easy. You can just get it right off your smartphone and then say it to them. Yeah, you, you could do that. It's very, but it's gotten easier. It's gotten easier, but that's, a, that's just part of traveling. You know, as musicians, the difference with us traveling is we're colorless. For, you know, like musicians kind of in general get along. There is still racism, racism there. But normally if, if, if it's a one-on-one -on -one situation and you're dealing with, with a band member, like me and Michael Clark. Michael Clark is a white guy. He's white, he's white as the snow. I'm a black guy. So back in the day, I had a big ass natural and I had my fists up in the air a lot. You know, free Huey, black power. Yes, of course, I I'm supposed to do that. And, and Michael Clark, he would, um, you know, sometimes he didn't understand where I was coming from, I don't think. So he, he thought that I resented him for being white and in the band at times, which was as far from the truth as he could imagine. Now he and I, we're the leaders of the band. We talk on the phone all the time. We're extremely close. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, you there's all these things to process. There's a lot of different things out there. What makes a good musician? It's not that you can play your ass off, that's for sure. Because if you can play really, really good, you're really, 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 really good, and you can't get along with people, you're not a good musician. You're not. If you're a musician and you can play really, really good, but every time you, you turn around, you're abusing somebody, you're not a good musician. Uh, well, no. Music needs to be colorblind. There's no question about that. I mean, so, so much of the greatest music that's been created 
has taken just diverse influences from different countries, from different genres. You know, I mean, that's how you get the incredible innovation. Yeah. Yeah. They're being open. You got to be open minded. So uh, go ahead. On this, on this, right. So in the Headhunters at this point, you guys uh, got guitar involved. Those first two records had no guitar, right? So that was a big change. And Wawa Watson was also in there, right? Yeah, well, Wawa came, you know, Herbie started reaching out and bringing, you know, the unit was five people originally. And when we added Bird, that meant it was six of us. And that came, that happened because of the solo record that the Headhunters did. That's how it happened. Like that, that you put, you picked up that record from Japan, Flood. Yeah. Now, if I can see it, you can edit it out. That's some of the baddest shit I ever played on. That shit is smoking. That record, that's some, that was killing. I mean, that was the ultimate. I remember it was the Sun Plaza. It was at the Sun Plaza. We did two nights there. And then they took music from both nights, made that, that CD. Well, and it didn't even come out in America for a while. Oh yeah, but it was the man. I couldn't. I couldn't tell you how. When I heard that and I listened to it, I said, "Oh my God, was it killing? Was it smoke? It's a sm Is it smoking? Oh, yeah, it's, it's smoking on fire. On oh, fire. Yeah, I I agree. It was very special, man. I, I I still remember that as one of the best concerts I ever did with Herbie in my life. Was that that rec that record right there? What would you say about your percussion style that kind of makes it Bill Summers? Well, I'll tell you what it is. I'm a support person. I'm not trying to solo. That's not what I do. I can. I do it, you know, but that's not what I think. What I contributed was a certain thread of organization and tightness, you know, um, and layers of different things. For instance, on, on Watermelon Man, I learned how to play an instrument called Hindu. And it's a it's a it's a it's a instrument played in the Central African force, in the Tory force by the little people. Now you don't want to say pig me because that's like the N-word, okay? That's not a good word. Just like Aborigine ain't a good word to quarry people of Australia. They're not average. They don't like that. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, but I learned how to play this particular little instrument and it's so unique. You know what I'm saying? It's so It was such a unique sound. So all of these little, what I bring is something uh, at, that, at, at, the, at that time and still now, people aren't familiar with these sounds. So there were instruments that I played like Benimbao, which is a Brazilian uh, instrument that was, it's an African instrument that became popular in 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 uh in, in jazz because of people like Nana Vasconcelos and Daum Ramal who work with Weather Report. Okay, I learned how to play this instrument from really, really well from from uh from from uh Nana. But you probably don't even know who he is. But uh I, I study what what makes what makes rhythm and music spiritual. And that's what I added to it. I add God to it. I add his voice or her voice, whoever that is, you know. And I, I, that's what I do because whatever what the music that I'm closest to is close is the music 
that um, I, I learned in the fraternity there, which is music for the universe. That's what I add. That's what I bring to the table. And that means if, if the lesson in these drums, when you play them, there's three drums, the Iya, which means Iyailu, which is mother drum, literally translated. Then there's the Okonkolo, which represents the child in the family. And then there's the Itotale, which represents the father. Now, none of these drum rhythms step on each other. No one gets in the other's way. The, the, the baby drum that represents a child plays the simplest pattern, but it holds the family together. See, that, those are the lessons you don't learn by playing jazz, okay? You just don't. You just don't. That's some deep stuff there. So yeah. now you're sitting down and you're learning 300 rhythms in a certain order with all these changes. And that's what I brought to the table. I brought that to the table. That's what I brought in. My, our heritage, our, the, 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 not the origins of jazz and R&B, and the Negro spirituals and gospel. That's what I brought to the to the table. Because I know that. I know that I know what that is. So, so when, I, the, when Herbie and the head and headhunters were creating those uh records, um did did you get direction from anybody else in the band no, or you just completely no, did your no, own thing? No, what could they tell me? How are they gonna tell me how to play a Gongoki? They don't even know the, what it is. I don't know. Did Herbie ever say, uh, you know, I want a fill here? No, or... no, 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 never, never. I did. I, I'm in the band. He did. He, he was like that with everybody in the band. When they came in with something, he was accepting, and he knew he he handpicks you. That's what he picks you for, because you could do this. This is what he does. I'm, I'm whatever he want to do, like that picking stuff, what, what the 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 Ituri Four stuff, the Bob Benzelay stuff I did. It, you know, he was so happy to hear it. You know, he said, wow, I never heard nothing like that before. So that, there it is. You know, everybody's bringing some, something unique to the table. What did David Rubinson bring? What did he do? I, I almost said the wrong thing. <laughs> is, is, he, is he one of those people you were talking about? <laughs> well, let, you know, I, you know, people do things in this business, according to what period, time period you're talking about, people did what they could legally get away with. And if, and if it was legal, it was okay. So now let me say David Rubinson was Herbie's manager, but he was also a manager for, I think, Chicago and the Pointer Sisters and a whole bunch of other groups. He was a, it, it, I, learned a I learned an awful lot from Mr. Rubinson. I learned, uh, I can't tell you how much. I learned so much is stupid. One, one main thing I learned is what not to do. What not to do. Because this man was really a very shrewd businessman. And I, I, I was like, have you ever heard of a, a book or a movie called The Spook Who Sat By The Door? Are you familiar with it? You need to well, write it down, The Spook Who Sat By The Door. You need to see it. It's a movie, and it's a book. But th there was this guy, and he's and, and he was he was uh, he joined the CIA, but he was real studious, real quiet. And then when he found, he learned how to do everything the CIA could do. He went back to the black community and started robbing banks and giving money to the poor. <laughs> so Robin. you know, like Robin Hood kind of guy.
Yeah, exactly. But uh, that I, I, I equate my, myself to that situation in that um, I had to, you know, yeah, Rubinson was, you know, he took advantage of us. He took advantage. Now, I'll be honest with you. He took advantage of us. I'm going to tell you something. Let me tell you something. Let me give you an idea about how things were. When we started working and we're going on the road, we each made $400 a week apiece. Okay, now that means in a week, they only had to pay us $1,600 to take the band on the road. Now, the rest of the money went to Herbie and to David. Okay? Now, that money never grew too much more than that. It did for me. I mean, there were, there were points where I, yeah, I stayed in the band longer than, I was there longer than any other band member. Benny, Paul, Harvey, um, uh, Michael, Blackbird. I'm, I, I'm still kind of, I'm still in the pocket with her being said in a sense. But I'm, I'm going to stay close to the situation. And I didn't burn any bridges. I was Herbie's worst nightmare. I, I, I was probably on the road. I, I created hell for him in many instances. I remember one time we were in Japan in Osaka. And I made instruments. I make instruments. I saw some big, big bamboo poles in some shop somewhere, which was a few blocks from the, from the, from the hotel. But the guy was closing up, and I needed. To, I, we were leaving town the next day. So this was my opportunity to get these this bamboo to make an instrument I wanted to use on the show. So I, I was maybe five, three or four minutes late to leave the hotel. When I walk in with this big ass bamboo poles and stuff, and uh, and uh, and and the road manager and he's fuming. Herbie's mad, you know. Um, and I said, well, just let me go put these behind the, the counter, and I'll be right out. You know, I, I went in, I literally, for a minute, 60 seconds, I came back out, they had left me. I had to get a taxi to, to take me to the gig. And I was so, I was upset. When I got there, I said, why would you do that to me? You know what I'm saying? You know, so I was, the, I was the rebel rouser, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, I created hell for him. Were you, know? were you the youngest one? Yeah. Yeah, until Bird came along. Yeah, but I was I was not, I was nothing nice, okay? Because I, I was I was very conscious of civil rights, and uh, there were during that period it was pretty hot. That was a pretty hot 1971, 72, 73. It's pretty hot years in the civil rights movement. Yeah, yeah. So, so Rubinson brought nothing musically. What? Rubinson brought nothing musically. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. He was able to tell Herbie, like, I think that under his direction, Herbie made a change from the group with, with, with you know, Buddy, with, uh, with the other guys, uh, like Julian Priester and, and, uh, and Eddie Henderson and those guys. They disappeared from the scene. He shut that down and started the Headhunters. I think David made that happen. Huh. I, think, I think David probably told Herbie, he needed to make a. He needed to change direction. He Herbie was like that band that he had. It was just wasn't. It wasn't really successful. Successful. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't. It wasn't paying the bills. Yeah. Well, I don't know if money was the motivation, but musically it worked out. At least I mean it was innovative. Oh yeah, it was it was it still it still probably stands up to, to scrutiny 
even with the music of today. I don't think there is any jazz musicians or anybody playing music like that that can that can reach that level. I, I, I haven't heard it. I haven't heard it. I don't know. I ain't heard it. Nah. So, no. You know. So, uh, but, but but back. But, but one more thing, David. I think he hurt a lot. He hurt us also. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because he did not. He did not give us. He didn't. He didn't stand up for us, and he did not ensure that we got what we were duly just to get. He didn't do it. Sorry, that's just my assessment. But now, on the other note, do I like David? Yes. Is he a good guy? I like being around him. I learned too much not to appreciate him. I learned too much because I was around him. Man, I learned the business. I mean, he was sharp, 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 razor sharp, and I wanted to be just as sharp as him. So I learned the business. And that's what the difference of, of me being a musician and making a living at it and, other, and some of my other uh, comp compatriots who are suffering. I know the business. I know the business. So I'm doing a lot of different things. I'm diversified. Yeah. So did that uh, spur you to go on and start doing your own records? I did my first solo record in 1977. So I had been with Herbie for four or five years. All right. And that was my training ground. But on the road to doing my own records, I, you have no idea who I was working with. I was working with Jerry Garcia. Not Jerry, not Jerry Garcia. What was the, um, the, the Grateful Dead? Um, it was Jerry Garcia if you're talking about yeah, Jerry Grateful Garcia. Dance. I'm thinking about Jerry. I'm thinking about somebody else, Garcia. Andy. Andy Garcia is a friend of mine. He's an actor. So, so Jerry Garcia, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out with Jerry Garcia, and I work with him on a solo record. There was another gay guy named McDonald. What was Country Joe McDonald? You know who he is. <laughs> and the fish or something? Country Joe. Yeah, he was a, you know, Country Joe. You know, then I, I work with Stanley Turrentine. I work with McCoy Tyner in, at, in the studio on records. So I was getting work. You know, I was, I was working. I was, I was already, by 1977, I had already been with Herbie and on a bunch of other stuff. So I, I was ready. I was ready. Now, let me tell you something. This is the David Rubinson you, you should know. I went to David because I felt it was time for me to do my own solo record. And I went to David and I said, David, I want to do a solo record. Do you know what he said? He said, oh! <laughs> he fell on the floor laughing. He rolled. He thought that was the funniest thing he had ever heard, which was painful for me because he laughed in my face. Mm -hmm. And so I'm gonna tell you what I did. I was on an airplane shortly after that happened. Hold on, I was on the air, I got on the airplane and there was a guy that had been hiring me to do work at Fantasy Records. His name was Oren Keep News, you know who he is? Mm -hmm. Okay, now you need to look him up, Oren Keep News, O-R-I-N, Keep News. Oren Keep News had the largest jazz catalog in history at that time. Milestone Records, Riverside and and uh, and Prestige. He owned those labels. And he had been hiring me to do work with people like Stanley Turrenty. And I told him what David did. I said, man, David, I told David I wanted to, to do a solo record. He laughed at me. 
And he said, well, man, don't worry about it. You know, I got some work for you. Come see me. So I went uh, after that flight. A couple of days later, I went to see Orrick Keaton at Fantasy Records in Berkeley. And you know what he did? He handed me a piece of paper, several pages long. You know what it was? A recorded contract. Now, that's going to show you what karma does for you, as opposed to, you know, the regular way that things go down. This was a real person. He wasn't black. You know what I'm saying? He was just a real person. And, and he was paying you more than 400 a week? Man, he had to be a check for $4,000. There you go. Okay, but I'm just saying, you know, what goes around comes around. You know, if you just stick to your guns and you stay true to your, your belief and your dreams, you'll be rewarded. It's real simple. It's, mm -hmm. You know, you can't always look for it where you think it should come from. God has different designs. He said, well, you, you're going to get it, but it ain't going to be where you think it's coming from. And that's just what it is. So Orrin Keepnews became like a father to me. Well, you know, like an uncle, let's say. And because of him, I was, man, I worked with, man, I, I remember doing a record with him with, it was called, it was a McCoy Tyler record. I forgot the name of it. But on this recording session, man, I'm the youngest guy there. But let me tell you who was on the recording session. Um, Ron Carter, Jack DeJanet on drums, Bobby Hutchinson on vibes, Eddie Henderson on trumpet, Freddie Hubbard on trumpet, Benny Moppin on sax, Hubert Laws on flute. I was the percussionist, and we did the record live in the studio. And that's the kind of thing that, that Oren did for me. He didn't. He, he treated me like a, like I was a son, or like I was his nephew, or not even even better than that. Like I was real, you know. That I was had something to offer, you know. So you know, you have you know, you weigh up. And so the, the, there's David. David laughed in my face. <laughs> so anyway. Well, but you know what? That motivated you, though. That helped motivate you. Yeah, I mean, but I still like him. I mean, it doesn't. It did, you know, that's that's the thing about being real. You know. You, you can, you know, I, I can actually sit down with the devil. I'd rather him in front of me than behind me. Mm, definitely. You know, so, but I can do it. I can, I can, I can, I've learned how to hang with some of the realities of life, you know. I, I, I wanted to mention some of those other uh, people that you worked with in that, in that period that you didn't mention, which was the Pointer Sisters, Bobby Womack, Lenny Williams, Patrice Russian, Quincy Jones. Um, Barquets can function so many, right? <laughs> hey man, let me tell you something. I'm gonna tell you to be very honest with you. I don't know too many musicians who have worked with as many people as I have. I don't know. I've worked with Elephus, Gerald Seraphine, Miles Davis, and Michael Jackson. And I mean, come on, man. I mean, you know, I mean, I look at it and I'm like, like, who is this guy? Yeah, I don't know him. You know, that's a lot of people, that's a lot of heavyweight people. And you know, I mean, you know. I look at it and why would why am I there? You know, why am I why was I chosen to, to be involved with all of these wonderful artists who have changed the face of the planet just with their music? And you know, only thing I could only thing I could say is that no matter how small you are in the scheme of things, you know, you are a giant. 
Yes, you do. It's funny, you know. I'm the I'm the N word of the music industry, but I'm I'm not a little guy, you know. And I think I think being humble is important. I think that's it, it's crucial to be to maintain a certain level of humbleness, so you don't misguide your you know take your energies in the wrong direction because you're not really no better than anyone else. I'm not. I'm not. You know, people say, "Well, you're a master." I hate that. No, I don't want to be a master. I don't well, it helps master. coming up how you did, too. I mean, you know, you came up, the way you came up and the story that you shared with me, that's stuff that builds character. Yeah, I hope so. I hope it builds something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, it better build something. It's either going to build a monster or a saint. <laughs> I, want, I want to mention specifically on those, some of those artists that I, I touched on, because you did play on some key funk tracks. We cover a lot of funk on this show. Um, that Pointer Sisters, I think, was a Stepping Out album. Stepping Out, a, yeah, yeah, that was big. Yeah, yeah. Yes, you can. What was it? Yes, you can, can. Well, you do, you can, something like that. Bet you got a chick on the side, was that? Yeah, right there. Yeah, yeah the, the point, we were really, the Headhunters were very close with the Pointer Sisters. We hung out together a lot. And, and, and um, David managed them also. And then on the Barquet's Holy Ghost. Yeah. And on Confunction, that candy album that had uh, Chase Me and all that great funk. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, um, your records that you started doing with Summer's Heat, you went to MCA and you got real funky over there. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I tell you, before we went, before, I was at, I, would, I got a deal. Remember I told you, Orrin Key Moves gave me a deal. And I did four records for Prestige. And the, the second to the last one, it was called Straight to the Bank. This is before I went to, this is before I wound up at MCA. And there was a guy, there was a company called TAR, T-A-R. And it still stood for Tom Ambrose Ray. Tom Ambrose Ray was a, this white guy that was a major R&B independent promoter record promoter he what he did this is not concerts what he did was he promoted records on the radio for for people he he would go out and you know take care of the campaign and he'd get a budget and they'd give him so much money to spend in different uh markets to buy radio time and blah 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 blah, blah. well he came to fan to prestige or fantasy which is one family he came to fantasy and they listened to all the music that was on fantasy and they heard a song that I did called Let's Go Straight to the Bank. And uh, they said that could be a hit. They said, this is, we, we want to we wanna try to move this one. So they, they would let them pick what songs or what artists they wanted to, to push financially in the, on the radio. And they picked that. And then at one point, the, uh, the guy, Tom, came to me with, his, with a friend of his, Paul Mack, and said, man, you know, I think we can get you a better deal. I think we can get you a real deal. And that's when I moved to Fat to MCA. They took me there. I went with, I mean, that was the vehicle by which I got there. Now, you know, the, my man Tom and his crew, they were scandalous. Okay. They were they were the real deal out there doing the payola, whatever they did. I don't know what they did. I, I shouldn't say that word. I can't prove that. It was kind of the golden era for that. Yeah. Yeah, but that's what was going on. People were being paid with money, sex, and drugs. 
You know, people were getting paid with, you know, cocaine and, and all kinds of, you know, crazy stuff was going on. Really crazy. But I, I mean, you know, I wasn't in that part of it, but uh, that's how I got to MCA. And we, I did a, the first record I did at MCA was called Call It What You Want. That was a great, great track. Yeah, and that track took me to another level. In fact, I was on tour with Herbie, and my my stuff was was hotter on the charts than his. Okay, and that's when we had a big blow up. That's when I, I actually left the band because I made an arrangement with David Rubinson. I said, man, you know what? I, my record is on the charts probably 20, 20, 20 steps above Herbie. I don't need Herbie. You know what I'm saying? I got a funk band. I'm on Soul Train, all right? I'm on Soul Train with my band. I'm doing better than him right now. And so I said, man, you know, I, I, I don't want to rock the boat. I even relinquished the, a pay raise. I said, look, all I want, I don't need the money. All I want you to do is when I get introduced, play a couple of bars of my of my hit. That's all. That's it. We get on the stage. When we get to a sound check, we can rehearse it. And all we need to do is maybe 16 bars and say, Bill Summers, and you know, he's got, call it what you want. Blam, blah, 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 whatever. You can call it, do a couple of bars and then move on to the next guy. So Herbie and, and David agreed upon that. But so we get out on the road. We got about a, a month tour, two months, whatever. And he said, we'll rehearse your tour on, at a sound check. So first sound check, we, we don't have time. Second sound check, oh, we'll do it tomorrow. Third sound check, well, it went on for over a month. And I'm saying, well, they screwed me. They, they, you know, I'm not getting, I'm not, I'm not getting the raise I could have got. And they're not playing, they're not doing this for me. So we played at a club called The Bottom Line in New York. And very popular club. I don't know if you remember this club. I've heard of it. And the name of the club just haunted me, the bottom line. So I went to Herbie. I said, Herbie. This is the bottom line. I'm gone. That's and that and I quit right there on the spot. Just like I quit high school. <laughs> I was on another. <laughs> and boy, you talk about you know about what do you call it? A fallout. Oh, the fallout was incredible. The fallout was incredible, man. Boy, well, I was, this was the last one you did with Herbie, right? At that time. At that time, yeah. Yeah. No, well, we I don't know. Is was sunlight after that? Sunlight was before this. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I remember Feast Don't Fail Me Now. That was another record. Yeah, that was in '79. Uh, yeah. Yeah. See, I stayed around. I don't. I think on Feast Don't Fail Me Now. I don't know if Benny or Paul was on. I don't think they were on those records. I don't know. I, I don't. <laughs> but I was lingering on there. I was hanging on. You know. But actually, after I quit, some years later, Herbie and I. Took, you know, we. We kind of, you know, I, I didn't know how to deal with it. I mean, you know, I, I just it gets to a point where you, you have to take a stand. There's a point where you have to stand and say, I can't, I'm not taking no more bullshit. I'm not doing it. I love you. I mean, that doesn't stop, but I can't let people do that to me. It's not a good thing for my son to see. And it's not a good thing for other young musicians to have to deal with. It's bullshit. I'm sorry. It, it is what it is. You know, and I, I stand up for things. I'm going to stand up. I'm standing up. I'm, I ain't going to do what my father did and not say shit. I'm going to talk. I'm not, I'm not going to the grave wishing I would have said something. So how, I, how did you get that Summer's Heat band together? And uh, what were some of the uh, more memorable 
like tours you did with that group. Now I got one for you that'll blow your mind. Well, the band, I put the band together much like Herbie did. I kind of took a lesson from that, going handpicking you guys. I picked two guys, uh, Larry, Batista, Clay Tobin, Richardson. They were young. They were coming out of college, and they were prolific writers, excellent background vocalists, excellent lead singers, could play keyboards and horns. So they came with, ma with massive talent. Then there was a guy named Scott Roberts who was in Confunction and at one point, and he was a percussionist and he played trumpet. And he and I were really close. We were really, we're still business partners. Then there was a guy named uh, Calvin Tillery who, who sent his, his cousin, sister's Linda Tillery. I don't know if you know who she is, but Calvin auditioned a lot of singers. Then there was a girl named Lori Ham and... Um, you know, everybody was handpicked. Bo Freeman. It was a big band. It was 11 pieces. It's a big band. It's hard to have that many people in a band. You know, you have to really be doing well to, to, to carry that, that load. So, uh, but I'll tell you, we, we, the, that record, the first record we did was a big hit. And um, we went on the road. I said, this is a very, this is an important story. We went on the road. And, and that, I don't know if this was, a couple of years, it was a year or so after that record or somewhere around the same time. But we were on the road and, and we were opening for Teddy Pendergrass. We had like, now 12 dates straight with Teddy. And uh, so we'd open for him every night. And uh, uh, then at the end of the tour with Teddy, the, our booking agent decided to add a few, two more days to the tour. Two more days of, of that added uh uh, hell and, and Beelzebub to the tour, okay? So, look, it was in Wilmington and Durham, Wilmington and and Wilmington, Durham, Durham, Raleigh, and Wilmington, yeah. North so, Carolina, where I am. Yeah, North Carolina. So, check it out. We get to the gig. I got a truck, a bus, and the band. I'm, I'm rolling hard. We get to the gig and we have wardrobe. Like, well, this is a funk, man. Then we throwing down just like everybody else. So we, we got wardrobe we're in the dressing room. We all dressed up, ready to go on stage. And the road manager comes. And I train the road managers. So I said, man, whatever you do, never use the word problem. Never come to me and say, we have a problem. Don't do that. You can come and say something like, we have some business to take care of. But never use the word problem. Because that just sets it off into some crazy stuff. So he comes in, he comes in the room, he's in the band, band room. He says, man, a little business we need to take care of. So I step outside with him. I said, well, what's up? He said, man, I'm just promoting. I don't know. I don't think he has the money. Because we're not going on stage without the money. So this is the children's circuit. So I, he, I said, well, take me to the promoter. Let me talk to him. So there's another guy, this valet we have. He's like six foot 400. He's a huge guy. He's big, man, but real real calm kind of guy. He comes over. They're standing. I said, wait outside. Let me go in and talk to him. So I go in. I close the door. I said, well, Alvin, uh, what's up? What, what, what are we dealing with? He says, uh, I don't have the money. You guys didn't draw enough people. And I look at him. And I, I just said, okay, all right, all right. You have anything else to say? He said, well, that's about it. So I hit my hand on the desk so hard that my, my guys thought a gun went off. But that's how hard I hit the desk. 
because I'm, you know, I'm on a, this is a chilling circuit. I know, I know how to deal with shit. So, so the guy, Alvin Few, get he's like frightened, like he's like, oh hell! And then all of a sudden, the door busts open, and here's these other two black guys right on top of him, you know. And they said, don't try nothing, you know. So he's really like, oh, you know. So I said, man, calm down. So I said, let's let's figure out what we're gonna do here. So I said, okay, these people, are, the, the audience is out there, ah, you know. And I'm saying, look, we are dressed up. We're going to go on and do the show. We're not getting them. He doesn't have the money, but we're going to do the show. because We can't have these people out here like that. So I tell my road manager, I said, listen, stick to this man like glue. Stick to him. Don't let him out your sight. I need to get to him when I get off stage. So we're, I'm hearing the guy on the side of the stage, right? They're, they're in the wings, right? On stage, but in the wings. I see my... My guy, my road manager in the valley over there, you know, doing the cabbage pass or whatever else they're fucking doing. And I see the promoters there. So I look over there the next time and I see my guys, but I don't see the promoter. And I said, oh, man. I, I call, I, I, so when, I, when someone was taking the solo, I run off stage and I go to the, my, the road manager. I said, man, where's the dude at? Where is the dude? He says, oh, oh, I don't Oh, I said, man, I said, give me the hand. I said, give me the handcuffs. Now, my road manager has handcuffs, so when he goes in to close the box, he handcuffs the briefcase to his arm. It's supposed to have the money in it, but I have him slip the money to a roadie. He never has the money, but if somebody's going to rob somebody, they're going to think it's him. You know? so, but you're on this kind of circuit where you got to be careful. So, so I said, where are the handcuffs? He says, I got to be gave me the handcuffs. I got off the stage. I found the promoter. I drug him to the back of the auditorium and handcuffed him to a pipe until I got off the stage. And then we took him to the hotel. We checked him out of his hotel. I brought him to my hotel, put him in my room, and put a rollaway bed in front of the door, and my val and, the, and one of the guys slept in front of his door. I got him up the next morning, put him on the bus, and went to all the ticket outlets. And as he got money, I took it from him. Now that's one hell of a story. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.